Well, good evening. Tough crowd. <laughs> uh, I do bring greetings from uh, Johannesburg, and uh, it's a joy to be here. So it was quite a momentous day. This was our first AGM this afternoon, so praise God for his kindness to us and, and trust that there will be many more and that he will continue to grow us in every way. Uh, that more, we'd see more people converted and that we would all grow in deeper holiness and greater love for Christ and for others. We can see from the slide that I'm preaching from 1 Chronicles chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there, 1 Chronicles chapter 22. I'm going to read through the chapter. It's not too long. And then, and then we'll, we'll look at it. So 1 Chronicles chapter 22, from verse 1. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing and cedar timbers without number for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought, to, brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon my son is young and inexperienced and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding, that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it. Timber and stone too I have provided. To these you must add... You have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. 
David also commanded all the elders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you, you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. So just some background. Uh, not many people preach from Chronicles. I've been preaching through it uh, in Johannesburg. So just some background. Chronicles really gives sort of the history of the world. Uh, it goes all the way back to, to, to the beginning. Uh, but it focuses in on the history of Israel. And the reason not many people read Chronicles or study it or preach on it is because it sounds very similar to what they read about in Samuel and Kings. And so they think, oh, well, I'm just reading the same thing. Let me, let me skip over this. But there is a difference. There are quite substantial differences. The, the, uh, when you read Kings, it's very negative. Uh, everything is bad. It shows how evil they were. And Kings is really a, an apologetic for why the children of Israel had been taken into exile in Babylon why Nebuchadnezzar had been allowed to conquer them, destroy the temple, and take them as captives. And it was to show that they had been ungodly. They had been wicked, and God had promised to judge them. As he, he gave the law in Deuteronomy and the consequences for disobedience. And so Kings is telling them, they were crying out to God, why is this happening to us? And Kings gives them the answer, because you guys were bad. You didn't listen. But God is a gracious God, and as I'm sure if you're a Christian, you will know, at times we feel terrible, and sometimes we can feel overwhelmed with guilt and shame, and we begin to despair, and we think that God doesn't love us. And so Chronicles is written from another perspective. If you read Chronicles, you'll notice that it's very positive, actually. Uh, a lot of bad things are left out. David's sin with Bathsheba is left out. Uh, it's far more positive, and it is written to encourage the exiles who have returned to Israel to say, you're still God's people. God still loves you. You belong to him. And it's really encouraging them to get back to rebuilding the temple and to have confidence in the Davidic line. Uh, and so here in Chronicles, we're obviously dealing with David. In chapter 17 was the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to David that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In the previous chapter, we, uh, you read about the, the purchase of a piece of land, the threshing floor of Aruna. And uh, the Lord says, this is where the temple is going to be built. And so David has purchased the land for the temple, and he wants to build the temple. And so this section I've divided, or this passage of Scripture, into four sections. And uh, there's a lot of alliteration here, so I hope you appreciate it. Okay, it's quite a lot of work that I put in. Point one, David's desire. Point two, David's disappointment. Point three, David's determination. Point four, David's directive. Okay, so a lot of Ds, but apparently that's helpful in memorization, so... 
Uh, hopefully you'll remember these points. So number one, David's desire. Verse 7, David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. And so we see here David's desire. David longed to build a temple to the Lord. That's what happened in chapter 17. He, says, he said to Nathan the prophet, I want to build a temple to the Lord. There's this, the Ark of the Covenant, this box, this small little box covered in gold, beautiful. Uh, it had within it the Ten Commandments. It represented the throne of God. It was sort of the, the, the moving throne of God. He said, how can that be in a tent and I live in this fancy house? I want to build a house to God. I want to build a temple. It was a passion of David's. It's what got him up in the morning. I want to build this, this temple for God. God is so great and awesome. I want to honor him. And so David has this noble desire, a good desire. In fact, uh, initially Nathan says to him, that's great. Do whatever is in your heart. It's the next day he comes back after the Lord has spoken to him and says, no, but David had this desire, a burning desire. It was in his heart. And so the challenge to us is, what's your burning desire? What's, what's the desire of your heart? What is it that gets you up in the morning? Uh, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is full of what are called shadows and types that are fulfilled in the New Testament, fulfilled in Christ. And so in the Old Testament, there was a physical building, a temple. That symbolized the, the, the house of God, the, the presence of God. When we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus supersedes the temple, doesn't he? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. The Pharisees thought he was talking about the, the building, but he was talking about himself. He said, I'm the temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6 uh, says, now that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter says we are living stones. And so there is no longer a building. It is now the church, the people of God, the body of Christ is now the, the temple. And so I would say to you, the passion and desire you sh should have is to glorify God by building his kingdom, building his temple, which is not made of brick and mortar, but made of people. Throughout the, the epistles, we're told to, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another, to care for one another, to confront one another if necessary, to admonish one another. Uh, it is about the one another commands. We are to build God's kingdom through evangelizing, through building up one another, edifying one another. Uh, and so what is your heart's desire? Is it, well, I just want to you know, qualify from varsity and get a good job? Uh, we, uh, church in Johannesburg, we are near the university campuses, and I see this, this is sort of the pattern. So the students, they go and study there, they get their degree, and um, especially if it's in accounting, then they get a, a job at one of the, the big banks or something like that, the accounting firms, and then they pull up to church in a new car, okay? That's the first thing they do. And uh, often it's quite a fancy car. Uh, and so they, you know, this was obviously a dream of theirs. I want to get this job so I can get a nice car. And then they get married. Then they have to sell that car because marriage is more expensive. <laughs> and they get a more sensible car, get rid of the GTI and get something else. Uh, 
But if those are your plans, those are your desires, what you'll soon find is they don't satisfy. You think, if I can just get this, then I will be happy. That's as far as you sort of think. I just want this. And, and it's not to say those are sinful desires. It's not sinful to want to uh, finish your studies, to get a good job, to have a vehicle, to have a home, to be married, to have children. Those are not sinful desires in and of themselves, but they can become idolatrous when they become ultimate, don't they? When it's what you're living for, and you're not living for the glory of God and the building of His kingdom, and seeing all those other things as vehicles through which you can build the kingdom of God. And so we see David's desire, what was in his heart and what is in your heart. And so you need to examine yourself and see what is it that drives you. Well, the second point is David's disappointment. Verse 8. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood, and you have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Isn't this remarkable? The Lord comes to David and says, You're not going to build a temple. It's the heart desire of David. It's what he wanted to do. It was a noble thing to do. It was not sinful. As I said, Nathan even said, Do it. It was a good thing. He wasn't trying to build his own kingdom or anything. He said, I want to build something for God. I want to honor God. And God comes to him and says, you're not going to do it. This is quite stunning and sobering because we do live in a world that thinks that it's a fundamental human right to fulfill your heart's desires. Whatever you desire, you have a right to it. I'm sure there's a United Nations document on it somewhere. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that true? Everything is about your heart's desire. Whatever you want, you can do it. Whatever you desire, you can get it. But if you're honest, you know that's not true. And the scriptures are real. It may even be that God will say to you, No, I will not give you that desire. It may well be a legitimate, good, and noble desire. And God may say to you, no. And that's incredibly painful. Okay. When you have something, a passion within you, and it's a good thing. And the Lord says, no. How many of us, yeah, if, maybe if you haven't experienced this, if you haven't experienced your hopes and dreams, some of them being dashed upon the the rocks of reality and God's sovereignty, you just haven't lived long enough. Okay? The longer you live, you will realize that not everything you desire will ever happen. And I'm not just talking about sinful, selfish desires. I hope those don't come true for you. Uh, that's, that's, it's actually an act of judgment if God gives you sinful desires. But noble, good desires... It may be that you, you want to be used by God. Say, Lord, I want to be used on campus. I want to share the gospel. I want to see people saved. That's my desire, my passion. I want to see more people know you and, and set free from a, a futile life living for instant gratification. But God just doesn't seem to give you that. He doesn't give you a lot of fruit. You go out evangelizing every week and it seems to be futile and you have a desire God doesn't seem to, to give it to you. 
Maybe you have a desire to marry. You want to marry, and it's again, it's a good thing. And again, the Lord withholds that. Or to have children, and the Lord withholds that. Maybe you want to have more strength and energy to serve the Lord. I know many Christians that are, are, are physically frail in, in constant pain. They start to feel useless. They feel as though, what use am I to the kingdom of God? I, I, I can't even attend all the meetings. I, 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 I can't even get out of bed. Ever felt like that? I, you, you, just, you want to have energy to serve God and it's, it just doesn't seem to be there. God withholds it. Maybe you want to be successful in business, in your career, not selfishly so that you can have uh, more resources to, to serve God's kingdom, to support those in ministry, to help plant churches, uh, whatever it is. But God, again, does not seem to be opening the doors. It can be devastating. But here it is in Scripture and in life you'll see that, that God sometimes does not give us our heart's desires. And it's important to know that up front, especially when you're young. Forewarned is forearmed. Because if you set all your hopes on those things, and when they don't come to pass, it leads to despair if your heart is not right with the Lord. Remember Luke 24. Disciples on the road to Emmaus, they just left. They saw Jesus crucified. And they left and they were in despair. And remember Jesus, the resurrected Christ, goes and meets with them. They don't recognize him. And you know what they said? We had hoped that he was the one. It's over for them. They'd, they had set all their hope on him. And there he was, hanging on a cross, pathetic, dying, and then buried. Of course, they were wrong. And, and uh, the Lord rose from the dead and met with them. But if you set all your hopes on something and it doesn't materialize, a lot of depression comes from that, isn't that right? We had hoped. I had hoped. I had hoped my life would be different. I had hoped this, would, this is what I had set my hopes on, that this would happen. And then, Lord, it didn't. Well, that brings us to point three, David's determination. How does David respond? Now, this is incredible. You know that experience of devastation when God withholds something that is good, that you've longed for. How could David have responded? He could have responded with anger. Sometimes we do that. I've been the best king Israel's ever had. I've done all of these things for you. I'm just trying to help you. And you withhold it from me. We do that sometimes. Lord, I've served you and I've given money and all of these things and time and you didn't give me this. My, my Old Testament lecturer said this. He said that uh, you're either a briber of God or a worshiper of God. Either a briber. And, you, and, and, and difficulties will reveal your heart. Because if you're a briber, you're expecting God to do something for you. Isn't that right? And that's what happens. I've done all of this. You owe me. You must give me what I want. Whereas a worshiper says, Lord, you are sovereign. If you gave me what I deserved, I would be damned forever. You know what is best for me. I will worship you and, and rest in you and submit to your sovereignty and your goodness. 
David could have responded by just sulking. Okay. It's also what we do, hey? silent treatment, <laughs> just moping around, staying in his pajamas, playing Xbox in the basement. <laughs> I don't know who needs to hear that. Uh, some <laughs> my son at the back there. <laughs> but he doesn't. He doesn't respond like that. It's, 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 it's wonderful. It's glorious. He responds in two ways. Or with, in a positive, positive way, and there are two manifestations of it. The first is by fighting. He prepares for a time of peace by fighting. So Solomon had rest. Solomon never fought a battle. Solomon had peace. David fought all the battles. Solomon knew peace because David prepared for it. David destroyed all the enemies so that Solomon could know peace. So let me say, for some of you, it may be that God calls you to do the heavy lifting for someone else. To prepare the way for someone else. You, in a sense, can be a David preparing for a Solomon. You have to do all the fighting. Okay, now, we're not called to fight flesh and blood. We don't, it's not the fighting we're involved in. But to fight sin and to, to go into hard places. Think of, think of all the people in church history, the martyrs and the missionaries and the reformers who fought for things we take for granted now. They were Davids so that we can be Solomons. We, we have liberty now. We meet freely like this. But others gave, gave their lives, didn't they, throughout church history. People were martyred for meeting. Missionaries that go into difficult places. And, you, and I encourage you to read the biographies or autobiographies of missionaries and, and those who go into hard places. You know, so many of them would, would, would battle for years and years and years and then have one convert... And then you keep reading and eventually that one convert backslides. But then the next person who comes along sees hundreds of people converted. They laid the, the groundwork. Think of those missionaries who went to the island, Elliot and Nate Saint. They went in there and they were They were murdered. But they opened the way to, the, to reach those tribes. There's beautiful, beautiful account. I mean, even the, the sons get to baptize the, very, the murderers of their, their fathers. But you see, there are those who have to lay down their life, those who have to fight so that others get to reap. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. One plants, one waters, some dig the holes, some plant, but never see a harvest. Some do this, do that. Maybe you're, you're the one out there evangelizing, handing out tracts, praying, trying to get Bible studies going. But you're preparing for someone else. Someone else will come later and reap the harvest. But your labor is not in vain. Let me, let me tell you that. That's a promise in, in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. Your labor is not in vain. God sees. But you may be called to fight so that others can know blessing. 
The second thing that David does is he gets the material ready to build a temple. Okay. So he doesn't say, oh, well, I can't build a temple, I'm going to do nothing. He says, well, I'm going to make sure everything is ready. Solomon gets to build a temple. We know it as Solomon's temple. We don't know it as David's temple. Solomon, in that sense, got the glory for it. Maybe that's, again, preparing to, to give glory to another. I always, and I think this is helpful, you and I must think generationally. Okay? Don't think about yourself. Think about children and grandchildren and in the church, the young people in the church and future generations. Trusting that, Lord, let's be faithful here. Maybe you will raise up reformers, evangelists, those that you use for revival and and, and great feats of, of faith and, and just use them in a powerful way. We're, we're going to be faithful with what you've given us to do. It's not about my name or your name or our personal kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God and what he chooses to do. And so what does David do? He gets the materials ready. He gets the stones ready. He gets the iron nails and the clamps and all the fittings and the bronze and the cedar wood. Incredible amounts of gold. Verse 14. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, etc., etc. This is hyperbole. These are like infinite numbers. Okay, uh, That's hard for us maybe from a Western background because we, we, you know, well then it's not really true, is it? No, this is how they spoke okay, at this time in the ancient world. It was, everyone understood. Nobody undertook this literally. It's hyperbolic language saying that he's provided large amounts for the temple. But notice what it says at the beginning of verse 14. With great pains. With great affliction and suffering. It was not an easy thing for David to, to prepare all of this for Solomon. The same for you. As we seek to build God's kingdom. It's not, it's not an easy thing. It's often painful. Remember the Lord Jesus promised that, didn't he? If you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross. The servant is not greater than the, the master. With great pains, preparing the building of God's kingdom, helping others to, to serve the Lord. It is, it is painful to build the, the kingdom of God. We still, unfortunately, even as believers, have indwelling sin. We still hurt one another. We're still insensitive at times. We offend one another. We're thoughtless. We're rude. We're arrogant at times. We have to bear one another's burdens. That's a, that's a difficult thing, bearing one another's burdens. You know, we all have enough burdens of our own, I'm sure. And then we're called to bear one another's burdens. That when, when someone in the church loses a loved one too, to weep with them. When someone else goes through some devastating event in life or some trial or falls in some sin, it should hurt us and we should bear that burden together. We're called to live in community as the people of God. He goes to great pains to build this beautiful building. Notice what it says in verse 
5. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. And so David gets together all this beautiful material for this, this glorious building. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this, the Temple of Solomon. Well, the church is to be like that, isn't it, right? The church is to be beautiful. That's what we should be striving for. Remember what Jesus said, how, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. Do you have love one for another? Okay. The beauty of a community that, that is full of love. Not just for one another, but also for the world. There is nothing more beautiful than holiness. The psalmist talk about that, the beauty of holiness. Imagine, imagine a community that lived out the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine a people full of grace and forgiveness and patience and kindness and thoughtfulness. We are to be beautiful. You know, those who, who study church history... I'll say that's one of the primary reasons why the church grew so quickly in the first few centuries under the Roman Empire. They were different. They weren't political and, you know, marching for their rights or anything like that. They loved even their enemies. Even the, the Roman writers themselves says they, they have a closed bed but an open table. What it meant by that was they're not loose sexually, so they didn't sleep around. They had high morality, high morality when it comes to sexual ethic, but their tables were opened. They showed hospitality and kindness. They reached out to others. And so this the church is to be built and she is to be glorious and beautiful. And you and I must have that as our, our life purpose, to build the kingdom of God. You must have a purpose in life. Have you ever thought, why do I exist? Now the Westminster Confession start, or Catechism starts with that, doesn't it? What is the chief end of man? Why do you exist? What is your purpose? Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him for forever. We are to glorify God. How do we do that? By building His kingdom. Charles Spurgeon says this, to have a no, you must have a noble purpose and to pursue that purpose with all your might prevents your being like, a, like dumb driven cattle. See, if you don't have a purpose, you're going to be that person who has to be driven all the time. Are you going to be at the meeting? Can you help? Can you do this? Can you do that? You're always going to have to be driven. Make your bed. Do that. Do the next thing. Go here. Fetch this. You have to be driven. But when you have a purpose, then you know why you exist and you do those things. I'm going in this direction. What is it that will fulfill this purpose? I'm going to pursue that. Spurgeon says it lifts you out of the mist and fog of the valley and sets your feet upon the hilltop where you can commune with God. 
I would suggest to our younger friends that they should begin their Christian life with a high purpose and that they should never forget that purpose. And if trouble should come, they should say, let it come. My face is set like a flint to do this work to which my Lord has called me and I will pursue it with all my might. So to have direction in, in life, to have purpose in life, why are there so many suicides and, and horrific things going on in the world? People don't have direction, do they? They don't know why they exist. What's the reason for, for me even being here? What's the point of anything? But the children of God, we have direction. We belong to God. Lastly, point four, David's directive. David gives a directive to his son Solomon. Verse 11, he says, Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. And then jumping down to verse 16, Arise and work, the Lord be with you. Now when I read this, it reminded me of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. You see that David is giving a commission to, to Solomon, his son. He's saying, Solomon, this is what you need to do, and you need to keep God's commandments. You need to be courageous, and the Lord is with you. Very, the same elements as the Lord's commission to his church. We're not to build a building, but we are to keep everything, keep all Jesus' commandments. We're not to be afraid because he has promised to be with us. Jesus came and said to them, Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's building the church. That's building the temple. For New Testament believers, that's what it is. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You remember when Jesus met with them, many of them were afraid. It's a fearful thing. But we need to be courageous. The Lord has promised to be with us. And so whether you're called to be a David fighting and preparing for another one, for a Solomon. Or God has called you to be a Solomon, building and harvesting and reaping the labors of others. The promise is that Jesus Christ is, is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And sometimes we don't get to see, sometimes we are Davids, we don't get to see the harvest, we don't get to see the fruit of our labors. Have you ever thought of the, the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity, in his ministry? There's no doubt that Jesus Christ was the wisest man who ever lived, the greatest leader, the greatest preacher who ever lived. We have snippets of some of his teachings. We have the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. We have his parables. So simple, yet so profound. 
even read from part from Matthew 23, where he rebukes the Pharisees with this, this, you know, it's heavy stuff, but it's beautiful, poetic beauty. And yet, at the end of his life, how many converts did he have? You would think, you know, he should have millions. I remember seeing a photo once of, of Billy Graham preaching. I think it's, it was in Asia somewhere. They said there were a million people. You could not see the horizon. It was people. A million people that Billy Graham preached to at one, one point. Jesus never had that. At the end of his life, they all left him, even his closest disciples. You'd say, well, what a, what a failure. He even says in the servant songs, Isaiah 49, and he said to me, that's the father, to Jesus, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. This is how Jesus responds. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Did you know that Jesus felt like that at times? Felt like I, everything I've done, all the sermons I've preached, three and a half years of ministry and healing and eradicating sickness from Israel. At the end of it, even his closest disciples deny him, betray him, run away from him. He didn't get to see the fruit. He's crucified. He didn't get to reap the harvest in that sense. But he fought for us. He won the battle for us. He was our David who defeated our, our enemies. Who conquered death, hell and the grave. So we can go out. We get to reap the harvest. We get to enjoy the blessings that he has won for us. That we are forgiven. That we know that we are never alone. Jesus Christ was truly alone on the cross. Forsaken by the Father. Experiencing hell for our sin. So that even if you feel alone, you're not truly alone as his child. He is with you. And we get to see, we see it now. Who knows how many hundreds of millions throughout history God has saved. Maybe billions that God has saved. The fruit from what Christ accomplished from that little handful of disciples. And so be encouraged. Christ has won the victory. If the Lord doesn't give you those desires of your heart, don't give up. Continue to work. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. Prepare for others. Your labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we know that it can be difficult when you don't give us our dreams and our hopes especially when they're legitimate and good. But Father, we want to respond like David. We want to not become full of bitterness and anger. We want to, to submit to your sovereignty and to do all that we can to help others. So we do pray that Heritage Potchefstroom would be a church full of people who seek to build your kingdom. Seek to glorify your name. Use the gifts and abilities that you've given them to serve one another, to be salt and light in the community. Maybe some here who are fighting, who are preparing for others. Maybe it's a child or a grandchild. 
The Lord, strengthen them, encourage them. Father, we do pray that you would, you would raise up men and women who will reap a wonderful harvest. We long to see many people saved here in Potchefstroom. We long to see your kingdom grow and your name glorified. We desire that, Lord, that we rest in your sovereignty. Amen.